This episode is sponsored by a company I've used for well over a decade, and that is 511. I wore their uniforms back in Anaheim, California, and have used their products ever since. From their incredibly strong yet light footwear to their cut uniforms for both male and female responders, I found them hands down the best workwear in all the departments that I've worked for. Outside of the fire service, I use their luggage for everything and I travel a lot. And they are also now sponsoring the 7X team as we embark around the world on the Human Performance Project. We have Murph coming up in May. And again, I bought their plate carrier. I ended up buying real ballistic plates rather than the fake weight plates. And that has been my ride or die through Murph the last few years as well. But one area I want to talk about that I haven't in previous sponsorship spots is their brick and mortar element. They were predominantly an online company up till more recently, but now they are approaching 100 stores all over the US. My local store is here in Gainesville, Florida, and I've been multiple times. And the discounts you see online are applied also in the stores. So as I mentioned, 511 is offering you 15% off every purchase that you make. But I do want to say, more often than not, they have an even deeper discount, especially around holiday times. In fact, if you're listening to this in the months of April or May, 511 Days is coming up. Between May 9th and May 16th, you will get 20% off all gear and apparel. And that applies both online and in-store. But if you use the code SHIELD15, that's shield one five you will get 15% off your order or in the stores every time you make a purchase. And if you want to hear more about 511, who they stand for and who works with them, listen to episode 580 of Behind the Shield podcast with 511 Regional Director Will Ayers. Welcome to the Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show Vlada Parrot. Now, Vlada was originally born in Latvia before moving to the U.S. and ultimately meeting one of my close friends, Navy SEAL Ryan Parrott. So we discuss a host of topics, from her childhood in Eastern Europe, being the daughter of a famous gymnast and a famous dancer, her own journey into professional dancing in the U.S., music videos and tours, the injury that sent her down her own wellness path, strengthening the pelvic floor and how that affects both women and men, the role of the military spouse, the incredible human performance project 7X through her eyes, and so much more. Now, before we get to this incredible conversation, as I say every week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Every single five-star rating truly does elevate this podcast, therefore making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library of fast approaching 800 episodes now. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to every single person on planet Earth who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you Vlada Parrot. Enjoy. Oh, 
Well, Vlada, I want to start by saying thank you so much for taking time. I know you're very, very busy with young kids now. So taking time out of your busy day to come on the Behind the Shield podcast. Of course, James, for you, anything. <laughs> so for people listening, where are we finding you right now? I was about to say, there's a lot I could I could answer that. So I'm actually in Dallas, Texas. That's where I reside. That's where my business is. So that's where we're at. Now, just like myself, people can probably tell by your accent that you're not Dallas born and bred. So let's start at the very beginning. Tell me where you were born and tell me a little bit about your family dynamic, what your parents did and how many siblings. So I was born in Riga, Latvia, which is Eastern Europe. And we came over, it's just me and my mom. My parents are divorced, uh, divorced and we came over when I was 12. So 41 now, you can do the math. I've been here for a little while. Um, it's funny you say about the accent because some people say I don't have one. Some people say all sorts of things. So at this point, you know, it, it is what it is. But um, yes, I speak Russian. English is my second language. So my kiddos also get to learn Russian. My dad um, is still in Latvia with his family. And I've got two half-sisters in Latvia. And I've got my mom who's with me here. She's a gymnastics coach. And um, that's actually why we came to America. And um, yeah, my mom's just solo. It's been her and I the whole time. So I know that your dad uh, had a very interesting profession as well. So talk to me about what each of them did you know, through a young girl's eyes and what impact that had on you in your early childhood. Well, I love it. So, you know, both of my parents are movers. <laughs> so my dad is, you can, can, in like in America, you can consider it like he's a Barishnikov of Latvia. Um, he grew up dancing ballet his whole entire life. I think him and Barishnikov actually at one point were training together. Um, and then Barishnikov left to America later on in his life. But my dad has stayed in Latvia and he was a very, very big prominent figure in our Riga opera house. So that's where he, you know, um, not only choreographed majority of the ballet performances, but I um, mean, he taught all the classes and everything that had to do with ballet. So um, he's, yeah, he's a big figure in Latvia. Everybody knows his name. And he only recently retired and stepped down from, from actually performing. He still conducts some of the classes. So he's 73. And yeah, it was only recent when he had to finally, you know, not dance on stage himself, which is, I know, extremely hard if you grew up only doing that your entire life. And my mom is... I mean, the same almost type of person, but she's in the gymnastics field. So she has an extensive background as well. Um, she was part of the uh, kind of lead generation that put gymnastics on the map. She was uh, part of the Soviet Union team with Olga Korbut and um, huge names back in the day. And she was going to the Olympics. However, my mom ripped her Achilles heel and back in the day, surgeries were not as easy and kind of a smooth healing process that it is now. So consider it, this is, she's 71, and this is, we're talking about 
um, in her teens, so like 17, 16, I can't remember what age she was at that point, but they had to replace her Achilles bone with actually a man's cadaver. So even as a little girl, I used to touch her Achilles and where she has the scar, one one of them is super thick and one of them is still, um, you know, a, a different kind of like bone or whatever the Achilles is made out of this point. Who knows what they used actually back in the day <laughs> to make it happen. So because of her healing process, she was not able to continue to train and she had a big shot to go to the Olympic Olympics and she was not able to go. So she continued to actually um, do gymnastics. She was, a, she's a well-renowned choreographer and she was able to travel all over the world. She actually did the Royal Display for Queen Elizabeth. At one point, she was selected to go to England and be one of the choreographers that, that made this display because the Queen's granddaughter was doing gymnastics. So she, I have a video of her shaking uh, Queen's hand and um, as well as, I mean, she's done incredible things. She did the closing number for the Olympic Games in 1980. Um, that was when the Olympic Games were in Moscow. So my mom continued to thrive and be, you know, and build her name in gymnastics. So she's still 70 years old and teaching it. And she's the head coach at one of our, um, you know, gyms here in close to Dallas, a little bit north in McKinney. So my parents have been these <laughs> movers. That's why I call them movers their entire life. Very driven, but um, also it's a different lifestyle. Um, you know, this guy, it was hard to grow up because I don't, I wasn't really parented. I kind of grew up on the sides learning my how to navigate through life while my parents were these big figures, you know. Now, when we talk about... Um... You know the the gym, gymnastics and the dance fields. You're not thinking of longevity usually. You're thinking a lot of times that these, especially in America, these kids. You know we talk about this a lot on the show. High school, college, they peak, and then you know a lot of times those athletes then the performance side is so so acute that then there's injuries and then there's there's kind of like an abandonment of that love of movement and then we see a lot of former great athletes in the college and high school space are now very deconditioned they've kind of lost that love for movement what do you think has allowed your parents to to keep dancing to keep doing gymnastics when a lot of people kind of peak very very young and then they just stop vodka for sure <laughs> Um, no, you know what? I see my parents broken and injured. That's the thing. Uh, what has given them that kind of longevity is their mentality. They have zero health. They have zero bone density, basically holding them up just to see it. You know, my dad has now, um, early signs of, I think, dementia because he just wished me happy birthday in What's almost spring? My birthday's in winter. This is the first year. So I have heard that he's not doing well. So from seeing physically, I see my mom every week. So she can barely walk. 
It's her mentality that keeps her going and going. Is that a good thing? Mm, no. And that's why, I mean, I've taken, I've taken notes my entire life. And I had this actually very rare opportunity to change my life and not to become what my parents are. I mean, we, I think we have a huge um, say in who we can become and who we are. Right. So I could have been exactly like my mom, exactly like my dad, but I chose a different path. So, so, you know, that's the only thing they know. And, um, my mom chose her career and she made that her husband. She made that her baby, you know, she made that her entire life, you know, the good and the bad. So without that, she really doesn't have a lot. So I think it's just, again, it's a mental focus. She didn't really um, kind of spread that love and have a relationship after getting divorced or, um, you know, taking time to go to restaurants and enjoy other people, have more friends. She did choose, chose not to do that. So unfortunately, you know, there are injuries to the body and, you know, some of them can heal. Some of them can, you know, possibly show up year after year, but it just depends how you want to carry on. And um, it's great that in America, you can take it to a collegiate level. You know, you don't have to go to the Olympics with it, but you can train. And if you love it, you can go to college and great and get scholarships and continue with that. And I think that's a rare opportunity. I don't know right now what's happening in Latvia. And I do not see that there's a big window like that. And that was the difference because when I was growing up, I could have went and, you know, also grew up as a gymnast, but my mom didn't let me because she only saw it in like the Olympian eyes. She said, you know what? You don't have the training um, as a three-year-old and as a five-year-old and as an eight-year-old, you don't have the, what she called talent. And that's that mental capacity to take this on as a career. So you don't need to do it. And as a six-year-old, that was really hard because I'm actually, I grew up in the gym. I was tumbling around. I was, you know, playing around, but she saw it clearly. She said, you don't have the mental retention and um, that, uh, what do you call, um, already that kind of yeah mental capacity to train and not just to have fun have fun but really concentrate on the sport so therefore you don't need to do it you don't need to break every single bone in your body because she didn't understand how you can just do it for fun she's like this is your life and you got to be the absolute best so I like that America does have different opportunities and you can succeed up to whatever level you want to take it at, you know? So you're a parent now, you've got young boys. Um, at some point, they're going to get into that sporting arena. You have a very unique lens and we'll get into your dancing journey in a little bit. But, you know, you experienced peak level performance, you experienced injury. And when you moved to the U.S., like I said, I, I saw this with English eyes. There was 
this incredible performance at these school level, college level, but then a credible amount of lack of wellness as you, as people progress into their thirties and forties and beyond, a lack of um, enjoyment of games of play rather than this, you know, if you're not first, you're last mentality. What would you advise people as far as finding that balance between performance and wellness with their children when they are in school, when they are in college, so that they're not broken adults like we see sometimes? Um, yeah, that's a tough, you know, balance is a tough thing. Are we ever going to find balance? Hmm. I don't know. However, there are steps that you can take to be proactive, right? And like when I think about it, in terms of, yeah, if you want to go to the Olympics, you're guaranteed, if you want to be not even in the Olympics, but you want to be the best football player out there, you're going to break at least several limbs, concussions, and 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 so forth. So the best thing is to have an umbrella team to help put you back together, really. And that includes your parents. That includes some of the best professionals out there. And meaning physical therapist, nutritionist, it takes a team. So if you want your child to succeed and have a great career, I think like looking at my boys, I want to start to get my head wrapped around what he's going to need. Because I, that's not my specialty, you know, to there's only so much I can provide. And some parents have, you know, absolutely no time as well. So it just, we have to, I think, look at it a little bit smarter and say, well, I do want my son to play, to be, I don't know, he loves soccer. He wants to be the best. So that's going to take some maybe extra coaching. So maybe an outside coach to also do privates with him. That's going to need some physical therapy to make sure that his joints and how he's growing, that it's also keeping up with the demand that he's pushing into the sports. Nutrition, huge, huge factor. So I think we just need to step up and make sure that all of these pieces of the puzzle are being um, addressed. And that was, I think that was the lack of, um, that was the lack in my parents' life. They didn't have these opportunities. There's no no nutrition. Your nutrition was, I know, for example, in my mom, um, the coaches needed them to be small so they can So not only can they move fast, you know, they don't have an extra two pounds on their body on their joints when they're pushing off and, you know, doing back handsprings, back tucks. So it's huge. And and in Cirque too, you know, if you have a partner that's lifting you, they can feel that two pound difference. And I speak of it because we also know a lot of Cirque performers. My mom has uh, had Olympians in um, world champions, I'm sorry, in acro gymnastics. So a little amount of weight is going to make a difference. So their mentality was always to not drink water, to stay kind of dehydrated, not eat because that was going to affect their performance. Now, take this 30 years later, we know more how much in nutrition impacts your performance and makes you better, how it can heal your body from injury. You know, how water is huge for not only your brain, just just everything, you know, from, from your brain to every single organ that you have. So I think as a parent, we have to look at all these different 
things you have to tap into your kids nutrition you have to tap into what is the what is this training like what kind of professionals they need to help with this training uh and recovery so i mean and that's the best we can do the rest you know we'll just have to we'll have to take it and as we go yeah, well, it's an interesting perspective because when I'm listening to you, I'm thinking about what we don't have in the fire service too, and it's all those things. And we're, you know, high-level athletes, the same as Ryan and the SEAL teams. You know, I know there's been a progression of experts like Chelsea and MJ that came with us on 7X that now some of these these high-level operators have, nutritionists and physical therapists and psychologists. But the fire service, we had none of that, you know. And so listening to what you're saying as a parent, I agree 100%. And I've got a son who runs track at the moment for high school. Um, and again, I'm looking at the way he's being trained, the way, especially some of the strength and conditioning stuff he's being told. Some is good, some is terrible. So I'm having to kind of pull back there where, you know, I actually know a little bit more. But then, like you said, the, the massage, the chiropractic, the, you know, the nutrition, these are all very, very important. And if you're going to ask someone to, be a police officer or a firefighter, we have to do the same things from the academy moving all the way forward. I agree. And that's huge. And those are the people that are protecting us. They're saving lives on a daily basis. And I also think about doctors, um, surgeons, you know, how, I mean, they're on call and there's some of the surgeries that they're doing that are extensive amount of hours and, um, you know, I, I personally don't have the answer right now to fill that gap, but it's something that I'm even thinking continuously for my postpartum moms and in my fitness businesses. How do I build this umbrella that moms don't have to sit there on Internet? They're delirious. They're they're, you know, exhausted, just like, you know, all of the servicemen. So how can these contacts be faster? How can these, um, you know, helpful tools be way more accessible nutrition being biggest key you know but you know with with the fire department especially you know i think it starts with somebody so noticing what's missing and then how do we find that absolutely well i know your dance journey began not with gymnastics or ballet but with hip-hop so talk to me about you know, we get a very um i think <laughs> stereotypical mental image of certain countries and you mentioned about you know the ussr and, and latvia now has independence so talk to me about the actual environment that you grew in what was latvia like at the the child level and how did you get into an american influence like hip-hop so of course um growing up with my mom and dad I think it was just inevitable. I was going to do something to do, like, you know, I was going to move in some sort of way. I uh, really gravitated towards gymnastics because it was the energy that I liked. It was, um, you know, it required more energy and it was fun and it was very physical. And, but my mom, early on, they wanted me to try a ballet. So they actually put me in one of the best ballet schools at the time. And that was a huge privilege because all they had to do is walk me in. And the director looked at my parents and said, especially my dad, because his name was, his face was recognizable everywhere. So they just looked at him and said, okay, here we go. The door is open. <laughs> and that's crazy um, to think about that. You know, I had that type of an opportunity and I did, I, I came into, um, 
a class where a very prominent ballet teacher, you know, that was her class. She was teaching this group and I didn't like it. Um, It was not, I didn't like the music. It didn't resonate with me early on. It was too mellow. And I did not have that mental capacity that my mom was talking about, which I didn't understand at that point, but 20, 30 years later, I I see what she was talking about. I didn't have the mental structure and um yeah, capacity to to hang in, hang in there. And I would cheat my moves and I never got in trouble. And all the other girls got in major trouble, even for a certain type of you know, physique that they had. And we're not talking about fat. There was a little girl who had bigger caps. And I remember it was a problem, like how she felt. I remember what she was talking about and how she felt. And therefore it was somehow addressed with the teacher already. So she had this mental kind of block already early on because of her caps. And she is seven years old. So it was just not a place I felt like I would thrive. And I my mom told me that I asked to not come to ballet anymore and that I wanted pancakes <laughs> because <laughs> as a kid, I made Russian pancakes for us. It's like, you know, crepes, American crepes, I guess. And that was like everything. <laughs> so I told her, listen, I, I want pancakes and yeah, no ballet for me. So they took me out, but it was unfortunate. There was no other window of opportunity. I did try ballroom dancing and absolutely love it. Uh, but in Latvia, you had to be able to sew the costumes like as a parent in order to even be able to take these classes and compete because there was nothing um, that you could do that was just for fun. It had a competitive level. Yeah. Otherwise, nobody had that type of money to just be thrown away on classes. You had to eventually start to make money out of that um, skill that you developed. So my mom couldn't sew. So therefore, I was not able to, um, you know, proceed with ballroom dancing. And it's only when we moved to America and I dabbled a little bit into gymnastics. Like she let me do the warm up with them. And, you know, I kind of started to watch the kids and just learn how to tumble. But honestly, she didn't let me join any kind of teams. So therefore, I just grew up running around the gym and doing what I liked. And it wasn't until I found a dance studio that we're here in Dallas that was connected to the building in the gymnastics building. And by the way, um, it's World Olympic Gymnastics Academy that is very prominent here in the Dallas area. And that's uh, my mom helped, you know, she's one of the creators who helped put this huge establishment together and all the protocols that needed to build these awesome Olympians and, and like nice to Lucan, Carly Patterson, all of these awesome people came from, you know, world Olympic gymnastics Academy, but it's because of the dance studio I saw that was attached and I would sneak over and watch these kids dance. And I was just glued. It was different. And then I saw a boy and a girl dancing together and how they were moving. It was just incredible. So I begged my mom if she could talk to the owner and see if I could take classes. And we didn't have the money to take classes at that time. Um, so she kind of bartered 
And I was able to take a class there. And the owner of the studio, um, Christy, and Christy has changed her last name since then. And I don't want to mess it up. So, but Christy was her daughters actually were in cheerleading and they needed some tumbling. And so anyways, we were able to trade. My mom helped them with tumbling and I was able to dance a couple of times for free a week. I learned jazz at that point. That's where I started. And I started to learn hip hop and it was, it felt amazing. It, it just, and again, I go back to that energy. It's the music, it's the energy. It, it, it kind of really resonated with me. The movement was extremely hard. And I think that's why I loved it because it is not traditional. Your body just, it has to go in many very different ways. So it was challenging. It was super challenging and I, I loved it. And I actually put myself, I signed up to be in a different studio later on and started hip hop and started competing in hip hop and just kept growing and growing and quickly on started teaching, started to be part of professional teams and it kind of took off from there. It's funny because when I was a little boy, I grew up on a farm in England and hip hop spoke to me. I don't know why I'm a white kid in, you know, rural England, but it was the same thing. Like, you know, I don't, there's a lot of music where it just does not speak to me at all, but hip hop and I wasn't really in a struggle. I was in a struggle with my mucking out stables and wrestling sheep, but it wasn't like I was worried about getting shot. But, uh, there was, again, there was something about that kind of underdog story that some of the, because I, I like the conscious music. I didn't like the, you know, the quote unquote gangster rap so much, but, uh, yeah, it was, it's, it's funny. Music is an amazing thing. Music and comedy, you know, they either, they either strike you in the heart or they don't. I completely agree with you. Two of my very favorite things. So you become a hip hop dancer. Talk to me about your journey to LA and then the pinnacle of that, that whole career experience. Well, um, boy. So as I mentioned, you know, in that, as I entered, uh, you know, to kind of thrive in a different studio and really concentrate on hip hop and competing and learning different styles, I just immersed myself in as many different opportunities to study from as many different choreographers as I possibly could. And I think that's what was very, very helpful to me. I know sometimes, um, you know, as a young teen teenager, you could be intimidated. You know, this is my dance instructor and I cannot steer away and learn from somebody else. I will get in trouble. And there was a little bit of that, but I didn't care. I kept going for what my heart wanted and what was missing if I didn't know how to do this type of move or it was a different type of movement because every choreographer has a different style. I was just eager to learn it and apply it. So I just kept following that no matter if I got in trouble or not. So that helped me become more, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, shoot, can't find it. But anyways, kind of progress in all different styles and learn different styles. And I decided out of nowhere, well, I'm going to go audition for Janet Jackson because I feel like I would absolutely nail this. <laughs> and um, that was one thing. I never had fear. If I can't do something, I just never had the fear or I never processed it, processed it fast enough 
to get that fear. So I kind of got excited about the opportunity and just jumped on it. And in my life, I think it's been a good thing. Um, so I decided to jump on a plane and I knew where the audition was. And this is something. So first of all, this I've never been to California and, and this was in L.A. And I've never actually even flew on a plane by myself. And I had somebody um, do makeup for me in the airport at 3 a.m. So I just said, I'm going to book this ticket and I'm going to figure out how to get from get from point A to point B, that 8 a.m. audition, God knows where. And that's what I did. I had somebody do my makeup. I had the attire that I'm supposed to be in. I had a picture and I don't, I don't know if I had a resume. Yes, I did had my, you know, little resume. And I remember, you know, I landed and I had one friend um, who was supposed to pick me up. He didn't show up. So I kind of looked around. I was already in a panic. My heart rate was racing. I'm, you know, standing there in Burbank Airport. I've never been there in my life. I don't even know. I only have the address for this location. There are no iPhones at this point. So we only have a real map that we can open and we have taxis and that's it. And flip phones. So um, I remember kind of looking around and waiting maybe five, 10 minutes and not seeing my friend pull up. So I, I found this uh, girl with a mom and I asked to kind of hitch a ride. And I said, do you know this location? Are you able to kind of bring me there? And she's like, oh yeah, I know, I know where this at. So I kind of jumped in the car with these strangers and didn't think twice because I was hoping for the best. It's a mom and, 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 you know, her daughter. And then they dropped me off right in front of the studio. Um, I believe it was Alley Cat kind of in Hollywood. And I saw a giant line, like miles and miles long. This is 8 a.m. And there was at least 300 people lined up to audition for Janet Jackson. Huge. Um, I don't have an agent at this point. Majority did have an agent. So I kind of just wiggle myself into the line and it kind of started there. Long story short, no, I did not um, make the first cut. I got cut pretty fast, but I kind of stepped out to the street and I saw this Hollywood sign and everything kind of gravitated. I just said, this is where I'm going to end up. This is this is it. And as soon as I finished, it was maybe um, less than a year. As soon as I finished my associate's degree back home in Dallas, I packed up my car. And at that point, I did go back to L.A. one time to audition for an agency. I got an agent. So um, they were just waiting for me to get there. I finished school, just my associate's degree. And I jumped in the car and I drove 11 hours straight paused and another 11 hours and didn't leave for the next nine years where did so, you where did you live because you talk about Burbank airport my I when I worked in Anaheim I, I started off in Burbank and we were like two streets from the landing strip of Burbank airport so I it was literally that moving to LA story tiny little apartment you know in a in efficiency behind you know what would have been a garden once and you literally could see the planes wheels down over your head you know so where where did oh. you find yourself living at first? 
So um, at first, North Hollywood. So right on the other side, North Hollywood. Um, well, I mean, Burbank is North. You're just going to keep going. Then you'll hit Burbank. So like really close to Burbank. And then at some point I did live on um, in West Hollywood. But all in that small parameter, I guess it's like five miles maybe. So so tell me about some of the the people that you ended up working with during those nine years. Oh boy. Um, you know, there's incredible opportunities and some of the choreographers were the most incredible people that I was blessed to work with. But some of the artists, like I have my very first video that I booked, which is kind of also funny, was an Eminem video, just just lose it. It's the one where he's kind of making fun of Michael Jackson. But what the funny part about it is nobody knows how hard you work to get into something like that or to, you know, try to get into the video, which I was not a dancer at that point, meaning I was not hired as a lead dancer. I was only hired as background and uh, some smaller scenes. But the way they shot the video, I was cut out. So here I spend two days on set and mm, you can maybe see my toe. But that was just one of the videos I can't really. That was my very first one. And I'm like, oh, I'm not even there. Um, I did work with Britney Spears. Uh, I did shoot one of the Beyonce's videos. That's um, Who Runs the World? Girls. I worked with um, Al Yankovic and I did uh, his kind of Lady Gaga spoof. It is called perform this way instead of born this way. So I'm the, I'm the whole body of Lady Gaga and he's the face. Um, I was able to tour around the world with Ricky Martin for, you know, we were working off and on for about two years. He's an incredible human. And um, that's like a second family that I inherited. So there's some uh, Jessica Simpson, I think, video. I mean, now that I think back on it, you know, I got to do incredible things and then live shows, traveling back and forth, you know, from Vegas to Bahamas to kind of all around the country doing various performances as well. Um, I'm just happy I got even to do that because it's not easy to leave your whole family and to not only make money for a living in that profession, but to even be able to, you know, live and afford your groceries, your living expenses, your car and anything else in that city. So I wish I did have another 10 years in there, but... <laughs> It's funny you said about Eminem. I worked um, really as a glorified extra on the World Trade Center movie. And we worked for like two weeks, I think it was. And I got, I got to recruit a bunch of other firefighters and bring them into the, into the production. In fact, it's funny. I got them in and then they almost didn't use me because they said, and I quote, I look too Californian. And I'd be like, I'm a pasty Englishman. What the fuck are you talking about? <laughs> too Californian. Anyway, because I think, again, it's funny. I don't know if you found this. You would imagine that people in casting are quite imaginative, but they're not. Mm. And so they wanted, you know, basically Italian or Irish looking people, you know, New Yorkers for this thing. Anyway, we shoot it and then we end up 
as I'm not exaggerating, silhouettes in the very back. Two weeks. Oh, you got to stand here. You got to do this. Hold this right. And then it was it was just funny. And I'm sure maybe there were angles that they might have used that would be closer. But yeah, I mean, I, I wouldn't say I'm even in it because I don't even know if I'm one of those figures in the background that you can see. But uh, yeah, oh, it's, it's amazing how much wasted uh, time on set there is for all these productions. Talk about that. That was the very, very hard thing because as a dancer, when you're trying to go for that one spot, and I mean, this is like the entire, you know, actual process in LA, how to even get this gig. The hard part is like, say for Ricky's tour, they needed four girls out of 600. So like, how do you know what you need? Of course, and that's where they're... Um, the casting agents decide that's what the management decides that's what Ricky decides you know he's like I would love all ethnicities I want you know if I want an Indian I want a uh, a one American girl it doesn't matter you know a white girl um, a Mexican girl a black girl and then same thing with the guys so then when you're auditioning for that spot that narrows down to a very tiny window so now, you know, me as a five foot two, petite, kind of blonde, white girl, I'm now competing against, you know, the other 300 white girls who have blonde hair. So that is the tough part. It's not that they needed 10, 10 of us. They just needed one. And when you talk about that, it's, yes, it's kind of debilitating. And that's what why a lot of dancers don't make it because you have to pick yourself up every single audition. And I can't tell you how many auditions I was there for four hours and the last person standing in that white category and all of a sudden got cut. So you, and they don't, and that's the hard part. You don't, um, they don't tell you why, but when you look around and there's 10 of you guys and you're the only white girl, you're like, okay, so it obviously wasn't my skills because I was, I've been here for four hours and there's 10 of us left. They're only picking nine. So it definitely wasn't my skill. So you kind of have to think about, you know, you kind of have to actually build your own credibility at some point. <laughs> Otherwise you're going to be broken. And um, so there was only one time that thank goodness. And he, He's a great friend. He's also a choreographer, Marty Kadelka, when uh, he's Justin Timberlake's choreographer. He's the only choreographer that called me after the audition. And when I auditioned for Justin's um, big tour and he said, listen, I just wanted to call you really quick. And that's when your heart is frozen. You're like, I either got it or I didn't get it. It's it's not like we're going to chat about something. It's either A or B. So my heart kind of froze. And he's like, hey, I just want to let you know, you know, um, you did great at the audition. At the audition, And when I watched the tape, the replay back, because back in the day, everything was taped like that. He goes, you killed it. And it was the biggest compliment I could have ever gotten. And he didn't say anything else. And I already knew it was just the best and the most nicest way you can say you're doing good, but you're still, you're not going to get the spot, but you're doing great. Like 
you know, you did the job that you were supposed to do, but there's a look factor, there's a height factor, there's like a team kind of factor that's going to fit the mold. And unfortunately, at this time, it's not you. And it's a tough, tough, you know, feel to be in because you constantly have to figure out how how you don't get defeated. You know, so... Yeah, no, I had I had the opposite experience um, as far as always being cut. So I, I I will put my hand on my heart and say that I went to drama school for a year and it was actually to follow a girl. Um, I don't think I was a very good actor. I certainly wasn't model material. So I you know, went out in that world and got no after no after no after no. And it was, I think it was the lack of investment in that profession that really didn't make it too crushing. But I did remember having a, a kind of step back moment. It's like people who's this dream, who have this dream, their entire self-esteem and self-worth is based on whether a room full of strangers thinks they fit a role or not. Now, of course, you can be a horrendous actor, which I was. And so skill set, you didn't get it as well. And it was funny because I ended up in stunts instead. And that was something that actually did well. It was kind of my, my genre in the end. But yeah, I mean... Basing your self worth on whether a you know a, um, a manager in a model agency or the director of a theater production or you know whatever it is, if they say no, immediately it's like you're not good enough. And like you said, it could be that you're not dark enough, you're not light enough, you're not tall enough, you're not you're too old, you're too young. Um, and then you know obviously there's your skills as well. So it was an interesting brief insight for me because i wasn't in there very long i got into the stunt world and it's a lot um a lot less competitive i would say especially in orlando where i did a lot of the stunts um but yeah i mean if you do not have that intrinsic self-belief and you rely on external validation and i think that's why so many of these celebrities they have this moment where they are the thing and then so many of them struggle after because it's that whole where are they now mentality yeah, that was a hard point. And honestly, um, you know, I think the only reason I was able to rebuild myself every single time was how I was brought up. And it's not the greatest thing because I, I'm choosing to be a different mom, you know, but my mom was kind of just my um, I wouldn't say a parent. She was just kind of like almost like my business partner or just somebody who was there to definitely feed me, protect me and, and, um, to make sure I'm alive, but she was not there to nurture me as a child. So I had to figure out how to, um, do many things like absolutely. And I was a horrible teenager. Yeah. I put her through some shit and it's because, yeah, because I had no boundaries. I had no guidance. So in my career, it kind of, it helped build my resiliency. And, um, but I mean, it's, that's not easy in, you know, I always look for the positive and I'll always look how, how quickly I can kind of remodel and focus on the good things, because obviously that can affect you and take you down period. Um, so that's, that's really, really tough, but, um, it's just one of those things um, that I've used it as a power tool in my life to kind of keep going. But 
it, the good thing is I don't have to, you know, now <laughs> I can have more, I guess, clarity and more understanding behind it and use it better instead of have a lot of ego behind it. Uh, so I can use it in a very wise way and hopefully teach my children. You know, we don't have to just kind of break our faces down and keep going and going and, you know, into this debilitating state, but we can kind of use, use some, some sad moments and some bad moments and kind of rebuild ourselves in a better way. Well, speaking of that, one of the problems that I'm sure you've seen it now being a, a military spouse or a veteran spouse as well, but a lot of us struggle with identity. So when I was hurt as a firefighter, I hurt my back about eight years ago now. Um, it was absolutely crushing, not only physically, but mentally as well, because my body had been everything, stunts and firefighter and uh, martial artist and all these other things. And all of a sudden, that physicality was taken away. So talk to me about your injury that you had that I know kind of led you into the, the kind of wellness space. Um, and then what was that like, not only physically for you with that journey is trying to figure out what was going on, but also mentally when you weren't able to dance for a while? So, James, it's interesting how you phrase that because my body was everything for me. It was my livelihood. Without me moving, not only was I not, you know, I couldn't provide my life. I couldn't pay my bills. I couldn't sustain the livelihood. I couldn't take classes. I So my body made the money and that was my career. So when I tore, I partially tore my hamstring, um, it was, it was, in, it put a stop on my life. It really did. So it was probably the lowest point for me because I didn't know what to do. If, if I wasn't dancing, I didn't know who I was and I didn't know a lot about myself, actually, you know, if I wasn't dancing. So it was interesting how it happened. It Because of my hamstring, I had to take a step back and figure out what physical injuries do I have? And then the healing process kind of started on the inside out. And it did transi transition me into a different field, but it was almost like this hard revelation and the universe stopping me in the tracks because I think the lifestyle I was living and how hard I was going, I, I probably wouldn't have lasted five more years. I mean, like I mentioned, I didn't have very great um, parenting around me. So it's just me being a rock star, uh, you know, kind of living almost like a dangerous life. Of course, we're drinking a lot, we're partying a lot, and we're exhausting, you know, like it's that whole kind of dancer circle. We're exhausting our bodies to the point in auditions and kind of our outside gigs. So when I had to stop and feel and, and think like, what am I going to do now? I'm in excruciating pain. I can't even put on pants. The pain was so bad. The inflammation was so horrific. I couldn't sit. I remember leaving a Britney Spears audition and um, even a choreographer noted something like he said, Hey, veterans, like veteran dancers. Um, he announced it. He's like, I don't, 
you guys need to really pull up. And looking around, I was one of those veteran dancers. And I was like, I just have to leave. because. And I left holding my neck, actually physically holding my neck uh, with my hands. And I went straight to one of the chiropractors that I knew. It was like a kind of um, holistic kind of base. And I didn't know what was wrong with me. I knew my leg was hurting, excruciating. It was excruciating pain. I couldn't sit. I've taken already two MRIs. Nobody really can tell me how to fix this. They're just saying you have a lot of partial injuries. So I'm now just trying to find somebody that would help me with the pain. And here I am leaving auditions because I cannot even dance to 60% of my ability. And you can see it. You can literally see it on my face. You can see it on my body. And now I'm holding my neck because I can't even hold. My head is like wobbling. I have no, it was, it was the craziest thing. My head was bobbling around. I had no, almost kind of no strength in my neck. So thank God I got that back. But it took me almost two years to heal my leg. But in those two interesting years, I um, found out that I also had kind of overgrowth and candida, which leads to kind of leaky gut syndrome. So I had to repair a lot of my internals. (laughs) And I was working with a holistic doctor to kind of repair, which was a very, very strict diet. There was... Um, absolutely no sugar for a, a serious amount of time. We're talking about, oh my gosh, not a month, not two months, not three. We're talking about six months to a year until I transition. We're talking about sugar, taking different supplements, so rehealing the gut. Um, you couldn't, so I couldn't dance. Now I can't eat the food that I know that I lived on. I have to learn everything new. You can't have sex because you're trying to clean everything basically from any orifice because the bacteria keeps coming in. So you have to kind of take a pause. So then I can't drink alcohol and I'm bartending at the moment because we're doing the show. And I luckily somebody gave me this job opportunity where we're dancing on, um, on this bar doing this crazy show. And I have to bartend. So I had to learn that, but that provided my income and I was able to kind of dance. I was still in pain, but it wasn't the type of dancing that, you know, that books me like a tour. It was just kind of fun. And, um, so I have to stop doing everything that I absolutely loved in order to have a mind and body intervention. And that journey took two years. And when I finally started to kind of heal from the inside out, heal a lot of problems that I had growing up um, from, you know, parenting from my parents and choosing to go into a different pathway, choosing to have healthy relationships, choosing to have kids in the future, it kind of sealed my world. And, um, I didn't want to audition anymore. I didn't want to dance. I wanted to give back. It transitioned me into the fitness field. You know, it's, it's, you know, I was just kind of guided (laughs) as I was kind of guided and opportunities presented and I was there for the right moment. So I 
tried to audition a couple of times and I just didn't want to hustle like that. It didn't speak to me that, you know, booking that video or going on tour was just not what I wanted anymore. And to especially to be around 500 dancers and to be competing for that same job. No. So now I wanted to learn how to heal my body, continue to, uh, to go on that path. And then now provide that information to as many people as possible. Like, how can I help you not to feel what I felt and not to go through what I felt um, physically, emotionally? And God, if we can just skip that and be born and to just to be like awesome for the rest of our life, that would be cool. <laughs> but, you know, it's just a little bit more difficult. <laughs> That's okay. I did a pirate stunt show in Orlando um, and I did it in Buena Park as well. But uh, there was the one part of the choreography where you would kind of drop down. The big brute guy would try and swing up. I think it was a, a weapon at you and you'd drop and you'd hit him in the balls. And so I would be like, well, I can do a split. So I'm going to do that. And it looked great, the kind of Van Damme move. But I remember one day and it was like a February or something, super cold, hadn't warmed up, drops into a split. And probably did a very similar thing that you did, tore a hamstring in the middle of the stage, carried on with the show. But yeah, that hurt for a long, long time. But the the injury I talked about in the fire service, which was years later, um, it took me to a thing called foundation training. And that was really, it was movement practice again that really helped me realize, A, how I was, you know, what what caused the, the injury in the first place. Secondly, to support the injury using actual, you know, balancing the spine and the muscles around it to take the pressure off the nerves and then you know to be pre preventative from there on in and it turned it took me on a completely different path as well and i was shouting from the rooftops i ended up getting certified in that coming back uh training my entire fire department on this thing foundation training and then i think that was really one of the one of the reasons that led me to just keep learning and learning and sent me on this path because i had the same thing as you when I was a stuntman first and a firefighter, and when I would come off shift, I would have done all this kind of service in uniform, and then I'd go do a show. And I'm sure you've seen this. Sometimes people be queening out because their costume wasn't right or whatever it was, and you're like, I just cut a dead person out of a car 12 hours ago. And it was just yeah. such a weird paradox, and there's some amazing people in the entertainment industry. But what I found is when you're performing it, there is that element of... I'm the center of attention. When you're serving, you're putting yourself last. You're putting other people first. And I'm, so I'm curious to see if that was kind of the transition for you that you realized that now you could actually, rather than just entertain, you could make a, a long lasting impact on the world. Yes. And honestly, when you say that, um, the way that you said it, I see my parents, like that, that was a show, like they, they lived on stage and that was everything, you know, that was their breath. And that's how I grew up. The stage was my breath of air. If I wasn't on that stage in that kind of light, you know, whether it's a smaller group or 40,000 people looking at you, it was how, what made me kind of feel complete um, and gave me a sense of, I don't want to say purpose, but it gave me that gratification and not having that. Um, and honestly, it's, it's almost like saying, wow, 
that's not important. The most important thing is your health. You know, you strip all of that stuff away. You take the cool, you know, <laughs> you're you are Taylor Swift. <laughs> but if Taylor Swift has no health, she's nothing. So it it gave me back that humil- humility and really yeah, it just it made me refocus and now it's important. You know, it transitioned me into that aspect so I could start to figure out how to kind of bare minimum, how to help people. Right. And my biggest focus was to prevent injury. But then when I became a mother, that went into a deeper layer, how I help moms transition from that postpartum kind of broken body mentally, physically, and how to then even try to run, <laughs> you know, just try to do, and that's, you know, you think that's simple and it's not. So really just kind of being a mom added in a deeper layer now. Um, and it's just, when I see my clients healing and, you know, happy and injury-free, that's everything. You know, I don't need a stage for that anymore. <laughs> Well, I want to get to, to obviously meeting Ryan and we'll talk about 7X. But just before I do, I had um, a few guests on the show that have talked about this. You know, one, again, one observation that I've made, and I don't think this is unique to this, the States. I think it's in, in the UK and Australia and other places too. But there seems to be an acceptance of, for example, weight gain during pregnancy. And now we're seeing, you know, the the um, gestational diabetes and the the hypertension and some of these other things that are attached to, to ill health during pregnancy. But then you watch the CrossFit Games and it's almost like a running joke when these athletes are urinating on themselves, female athletes. Um, and so, you know, you start diving into the real experts because obviously women's health is not exactly my wheelhouse. Um, you know, but it just to me is like, how can this be normal? You, surely the human body is such a beautiful design. There's no way that you have a child and now you're going to be peeing on yourself the rest of your life. So talk to me about what you were actually unpacking when it came to, as you talked about, the the kind of the physiology, whether it's you know, during pregnancy and then postpartum and getting these women back to, it's never going to be the same because you just, you had a baby, you're a completely different person, but regaining your health and your your anatomy again after a very traumatic event like that. Yeah, and you're right. It is a traumatic event. Um, <laughs> and that's the way women are designed to do that. That's not normal to push a human being, you know, out of your vagina or your belly and have all those muscles opened. So it is an injury to the body. And we have to also not look at it that we're broken. It is possible to heal. And it just takes the right steps to make sure the muscles are healing well. There's timing, you know, naturally your body is going to heal no matter what, but then you have to provide it the right amount of stress. And we look at stress kind of as a bad thing, but your your muscles need to be stimulated in some way when specifically. Uh, So there needs to be a little bit of stress and it needs to be time to heal. So part of that stress is what type of training you provide those muscles. Um, And... um, you know, and nutrition, because that is what is going to obviously heal the tissue. It is a tough process, but thank goodness now fitness uh, professionals and such as myself, I'm learning for physical therapists. I'm partnering and um, kind of have a great relationship with uh, public floor PTs and great communication so we can kind of learn from each other and get 
the most amount of kind of knowledge around to help moms because that window is still not bridged from the time that you leave the hospital, you get your, you know, either they're checking you out for your C-section follow-up, or if you had a, just a vaginal delivery, they're checking you out for that. And that's it. You're like, oh, okay. You still have a vagina. Great. See you later. <laughs> um, but wow. If they, if you left with like, say a pamphlet of, uh, like a little sheet, only a couple things. It gave you, for example, um, a pelvic floor PT, a fitness professional that understands uh, corrective postpartum movement, and also say lactation consultant, and shoot, a doula and a mental consultant. You're rocking, and it's not it's not hard. But that's what I'm trying to provide for the moms that big umbrella, so they can have a better success at recovering. Um, now back to your original question, which I already forgot. Cause I went on to my tangent. Um, <laughs> the body can heal, you know, um, and it's very possible and peeing on yourself. The normal, normal is not the right word. We're seeing it very common. It's becoming very common, but is it normal for your muscles to not function properly and protect the body? No, that's not normal. But if it's if it starts to happen, then that's where people like myself or a physical therapist need to come in and step in. So no mom <clears throat> needs to like no mom needs to wait and definitely reach out at this point because your muscles basically what it's saying the system is unbalanced you know the system's unbalanced and there's not great coordination between your pressure management for example if you just sneezed and peed, peed yourself your muscles are not responding to the amount of pressure you're putting down on that pelvic floor now the same thing with heavy lifting you know men they are ripping their things down there. I'd like to call them something nicer, but you know, <laughs> everything down there. And honestly, even after hardcore training in the military, men are experiencing issues with their rectum and, you know, anal seepage and things that are happening in the rectum. So it's, it's the same. It's um, how, how much was your body put through and if you were not cared for and properly kind of instructed how to rehabilitate yourself, it's not easy. You're going to keep doing the same type of patterns and um, the same type of movements that are probably going to exacerbate the issue. So there is a way. And we're getting a lot smarter and trying to provide this information way faster to moms like myself, especially. But I'd also love to tap into the military uh, community and help them kind of also rebuild because we don't need broken buttholes. We can we can fix <laughs> up. <laughs> I mean, if you just had a slide that said anal seepage, that would get everyone's attention. I, I didn't expect that word to come out on this. <laughs> Not a problem. <laughs> All right. Well, then I I want to segue, but I'm, I'm trying to get away from the word anal seepage, but and then connect that with Ryan Parrott, and maybe it's a direct kind of correlation. I don't know. <laughs> but so I'm gonna jump a little bit ahead. I mean, we haven't got time to kind of really unpack you guys meeting and and 
so you find yourself, you know, meeting this amazing Navy SEAL, a very altruistic human being. He, he's created Sons of the Flag, which is the uh, nonprofit for the burn injured military and, and first responder community. Talk to me about the on-ramp and the experience for 7X, because I got to watch this, you know, through my eyes as a friend to Ryan, and I could see it. I could hear it on the phone. I could see it when we actually were face-to-face. I mean, the day he walked into the airport when we were getting ready to initiate our our first flight, he, he just looked absolutely broken. So the goal of 7X was once we actually went on the journey we were simulating the physical and mental breakdown of a deployment of a you know wildland fire of you know whatever it is that our profession would do but what i observed is Ryan didn't even have to get on that plane that was such a, a, a exhausting on-ramp experience for him so that means that it was exhausting for you and exhausting for the kids as well so talk to me about the inception of that project and you know your experience of that whole dynamic pre, during, and post through the eyes of a spouse. Right. So just a little bit about the 7X projects, you know, Ryan created this project to stop suicide. Um, There's got to be a stop and it's not an awareness campaign. Um, There's got to be now professionals that are coming in and figuring out on a deeper level how to put a stop to this. So first we've got to figure out how the body's broken down how does it even get to that level when, when, why a person's taking their, his life? You know, whether it's man, female, now kids, it is a horrific thing. And statistically, I think he just even, we had a discussion. He, what did he mention? That the Boston University, he said, did a study. And um, so they said that there is post 9-11, the amount of veterans and military members that have died in combat were over 7,000. And since that same time frame, 30,000 more were actually committed suicide. So there are more people that are committing suicide, you know, veterans and active duty members than actually being killed in combat. And that's huge. So is that whole training what I mean, just not the training It's everything that they see, everything that they experience, the whole entire thing affects. But how does it affect the body? How does it affect the mind? So Ryan said, this is we got to stop. You know, there's so many brothers that he has lost. And I know you have two very close people. And we have to figure out how to how to make it put an end to this you know we have to step up because we can we can do better as a society and so it's a tough project so of course he put together an incredible group and that's where I stepped in that's why I said you need nutritionists you need physical therapists because I'm not doing this again and again and seeing you broken there's been great events that Ryan's done in the past like a hundred mile run to raise a hundred thousand dollars for um, burn survivors in his last organization, but it broke his body. The nutrition wasn't on point and everything else to go along with that. So this time I said, I'm just sitting back and I'm just checking off the things that I see that need to be in there. And he did, he put the great team together that checked all the boxes with the doctors, 
with nutritionists, with the whole group, the runners and, and, you know, every single person that he handpicked, um, yourself included. <laughs> so the tough part was he's also raising funding, funding to make this happen because we need the funding to make sure the testing is done to figure out how the body is broken down, what's needed, how it needs to be regenerate, regenerate, and then how to continue all of that research to keep going and create a manual so there is now direction to better heal, you know, to, to mentally, physically. So the hard part was there were things funding-wise that were falling apart at the last minute. And of course, nothing's going to ever go perfect. But when you can feel incredible amount of tension um, and now you have a window that gets shorter, shorter, shorter every day. And I think for the last two weeks is when it was it, it, the pressure was like it was like a pressure cooker. You know, every person that uh, might have said yes and was contributing to funding, not every person, I'm saying some of the important people that were contributing to the funding have not have backed out. Then you have to look for other people and other resources. And now the team is already assembled. Everybody's ready to go. There's, you know, VIP kind of selected um, people that are also on that experience, seeing what you guys are doing, how how you guys are accomplishing this mission and they're contributing to this mission financially as well. Um, so I saw Ryan kind of go into like these red zones, which I've experienced as a very newborn mom. And I remember like when our first child was born, I had such a high level of anxiety that I forgot in three days how to sleep, period. I, I couldn't access that sleep anymore. And I was in a huge panic and I was absolutely delirious, you know, trying to figure out what to do with a newborn baby. And we were kept fighting back and forth because nobody can reason clearly when you're have zero amount of sleep. So I went into that mode. I remember that feeling and I could see it in him because at that point, Brian hasn't slept already in three, four days. So he's continually on the phone calls, bringing this money, making sure the plane, which is in a different country, we can still get this plane so everybody can go on it across the world. It's a seven country continents in seven days. So bottom line, um, it at first, I could kind of step back and make sure he was doing his job. And then as the weeks progressed and maybe the last three days, I kind of inherited all of that stress because I was I became in the same panic because at that point I stopped kind of motivating and rooting him on. And um, I saw that we ran out of options like we and of course, when when he would just, you know, he would tell me what was happening. Like he spoke to this person and they're not able to fund it. He spoke to this additional person and they just, you know, something happened and they pulled out. So once you tapped out of all of your resources and you have a group that's assembled to go, 
because they've already put half of the funding in and they've taken on their jobs and they are waiting to board the plane, actually. <laughs> it's it's hard not to um, feel stressed. It's impossible. You can't. You can't. So um, Ryan was just in a huge, huge panic. And I think we just, we ended up solving it at the last minute, literally one second away from basically that stopwatch ticking off. We able to get everything in. And I say we, it's just, you know, I was by his side trying to help with what I could, you know, even running to the bank and say, mom, here's what I need. And that's it. You know, I need to put down this money to help. This is now kind of a family problem. Um, and unfortunately, I also had to kind of figure out how to check out and be a mom. And I couldn't because I've seen now my husband hasn't slept in four days and he's about to board a plane and go to South Africa. What's that flight like? Uh, so, and so actually, as soon as he left, I knew that he was with you guys and that made me feel 2% better. And I had to kind of recalibrate myself and make my nervous system go down and now check in and be full-time mom and focus on my job. But I would send him every day and I guess every 10 hours, whenever he could check in with me, I would send him ways that he kind of things that I've learned in my path of healing, how he can reset his nervous system and things that he can do little kind of, I want to even say the trick. It's really kind of how to use breathing to really reset your mind, your, your brain, everything, all your stress levels, everything from A to B, A to Z. And it wasn't helping. It would help a little bit in the beginning. I'm sorry, in in the beginning was very hard. So he kind of had to apply it every single time he was on a plane and he was sitting, but he was still was not sleeping and it was day six. So he ramped up his stress level so high that like you said, you physically saw it. You might've not even known that he hasn't slept already for five days, but he's already physically broken just by looking at him. And I continued to worry because yeah, it's going on day six and I'm giving him my little skill set and it's not working a hundred percent because he's still in that hamster wheel. His brain is still spinning and trying to kind of get back, but it's really hard. So thank goodness for the doctors that he did have on the plane that they were kind of tapping into that and giving him some of the medicine, some of the natural stuff. They were trying everything. Honestly, they, by the time, by day three, I think they could have tranquilized a horse and what they gave him. And he was still operating in that high level of stress, which is nuts. One thing didn't work. Okay. Ambien didn't work. He's fully functioning on that. Continuing you guys, you know, there's skydiving, things that were happening. There's beige jumping. He's running uh, 14 miles every 24 hours. 
his team is running a full marathon, but Ryan still opted to do half, even though he was absolutely delirious. So physically, he's still exhausting his body and his body's not ready to go to sleep. So mentally, he's just at a super high level of stress. And thank goodness, <laughs> with a concoction of multitude of things, it finally hit him and his body started to reset on day six of not sleeping. And that's a lot. It just, it just shows how, uh, what crazy potential we have ourselves. He did it to himself. Like nobody, there were outside things, obviously that pushed him into this, but we are responsible and we control how much we put ourselves under that stress level. So just glad that that part is you know that's done well it was amazing because i mean i watched that myself and i kept hearing every day i go check on him in the morning and he go nope not a wee and i think he would have micro sleeps and not realize it but even so i mean not a good sleep and i i we were giving him the uh, doc parsley sleep remedy which i love i was I have my CBD, so I'd give him, he's like a baby bird, he'd open his mouth and I'd drop <laughs> a CBD in his mouth every night and, you know, hope the next morning he's going to have this miraculous change. And like you said, it, it was like a, a vicious circle that needed like a really heavy pharma, pharmacological reboot at the end of the day. But that's the point. That's what firefighters experience when we're on shift, you know, especially when we get forced to stay extra shifts. You know, we we can still operate, but we don't realize that our baseline is absolutely trench level compared to where it should be. And yeah, that's a scary place. And why would you be mentally sound and happy and you know, normal, and I say normal, why, why would you be happy around your family? You, There's no way. You're experiencing so much deprivation in your natural state that it's humanly impossible to continue such a pattern for a long time. So there's definitely has to be precautions and there's steps that have to kind of de-stress your mental things, uh, mental levels where you can kind of do quick resets along with bigger resets, which of course, you know, um, that's where we need more. I wouldn't say protocols, but that's where we need way more, um, you know, what's this, James? What am I trying to do? Like, what are my hands doing right now? <laughs> You're putting things together. <laughs> Yes, but that's where we need a lot more tools and a lot more help because like the things that I was giving Ryan with breathing and just mental kind of decompression, they were helping him. These are easy things to do, but however, the level of stress he already took himself upon, it's not going to be like a snap type of deal. So you have to understand, you have to now almost make that like you're drinking water because you're thirsty. So now I'm doing these breathing drills and kind of letting go of the stressor the stressors and also bringing new energy and rebalancing myself just on in little ways as i continue to find the bigger holes that are missing so there are little things that you can do but of course sometimes like those drugs need a hardcore just a pause so you can catch up on even three hours of sleep Absolutely. Well, I mean, the, I know we were all sleep deprived, but I went in, that was interesting. I went in with with a, a very well slept, you know, 
mind when I first went. So I got to see the breakdown and I didn't have that pre-exhaustion that he had. And I was just amazed how just delirious I was. It was in London, especially. I mean, I just barely could even see straight. And I'd spent 14 years in that, that, you know, state or similar to that state. And I think it's important for people to hear, you know, this wasn't a kind of look at me adventure for social media. This was you know, initiated by him losing David, his sniper partner, you know, via suicide, and then wanting to do something good, wanting to change the world. But I think it's important for people to hear the stuff that, you know, he went through, you went through, your family went through financially, emotionally, etc. The other, I think that the biggest value of this whole thing was really the reboot stage. Like, how do we build ourselves back up again. I made so many mistakes when I first came back. Not you know, anything serious, but scheduling and just I was it took me genuinely 3 4 weeks to get my mind back to normal again and that was just 10 days, you know, without all the pre-stress that he had before. So, as a last thing before we wrap up cuz I know you got to go, what were some of the things that that you saw work when he returned and in his personal reboot after such a harrowing journey? Ah, uh, you know, he, he's on this. I mean, I guess that's you know his situation maybe reflects a lot on like firefighters and everybody else because you guys kind of exit that and come into home life where kids are screaming or you have to take children to school and to camps and so forth, and then you have a wife or a partner, somebody by your side that also requires either attention or you know some sort of responsibility. So I knew that we need to kind of step back for at least a week to just let him adjust. So of course, um, I, his mom was here. So we kind of took that time to do all the kid chores, make sure that we're, you know, dealing with the kids. Of course they wouldn't be around dad. So as long as Ryan was sleeping, we were going to be okay. As long as he was sleeping eating and just yes he was falling asleep and just random ties times you know he was probably he would sit down on the couch and fall asleep and just sit down and so just letting him kind of do that uh, as long as he needed to that was the biggest thing and it was hard for him transition like week two was tough because then mother-in-law was not there and then I'm kind of jumping into more work so it was baby steps and Still, nutrition-wise, um, he's still continuing to kind of follow what he needs to follow since there's a protocol that and a manual that you guys are building while his, him and the doctors and everybody's putting together. So, of course, he, there's a supplementation kind of regimen that he has to follow to make sure that his body's healing well. But to decompress for something like that, I think it, it took him a lot of sleep and just not jumping into work and having to fund and do anything that had to do with like business relationships, sales, anything, anything that had to do with, yeah, money. And I don't even know if he, he's never, he hasn't run since then. So, <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, he hasn't been moving, but except for, you know, the traditional mowing the lawn and doing easy things like that. And it's been now a month. So he's still kind of in, he's working now, but it's just sleep was essential. 
And that's the biggest thing that we're all kind of missing, I think, you know, but the horrific things that you guys all see and encounter every day and, you know, what Ryan's experienced in the service and after the fact um, with this, the suicide, um, it's still a big, big key to tackle because our mind doesn't, and our, you know, our mental health, that doesn't get to decompress and just kind of sleep and snap out of it. That needs a lot more nurturing and precise, like precision, really precision. Absolutely. Well, I think that's the whole point of this manual is, you know, there are great books on mental health, you know, when it comes to psychology or, you know, there's great uh, psychedelic experiences now in these things, but you've got to look at the whole holistic being. And this isn't trying to be the answer. It's trying to give people tools to prepare for this profession, to try and stay healthy during it and to transition out healthily as well. And I think, you know, they did such a great job of simulating that they really did and we were all at different stages i'm actually going to sit down with ryan and dukes because ryan obviously had the you know the the origin story and put this thing together but dukes's journey was one of the most incredible to watch while we were on there so i think you know we talked about this a lot we went in almost thinking like it was more of a fact-finding mission and then really it was a human experience mission and within those human experiences are the takeaways you know the 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 tribalism and you know the community and the the mental health and nutrition and the fitness but um the the actual human experience i think is really what's going to make the the manual and the docuseries so powerful because you can put up powerpoint you know presentations and display data but it's not until you hear someone's journey from a dark place to somewhere amazing through a lot of these things that we've talked about that you really understand the impact and the value of such seemingly trivial things like sleep right and and that's a big thing too having that community you guys became a community a very small tight group on that airplane that journey for seven days so you were able to take the hardships together and kind of also reflect on what you guys done in your life and many people were at different levels you know we have businessmen that are you know, at a high level of business, then we have like uh, base jumpers, a professional base jumper. So there's all different walks of life, firefighters and, and yes, military and not. So to kind of share your hardships together and then to go through something like that and to come out on the other end, because that was a tough, that was tough for, that was not a party. (laughs) That was not a party to be in. And although, you know, you guys did have some wonderful moments that made it feel like a party because you guys were all together. But that, I think that's what's important, too, is um, if you feel like you're going alone through something like that and a mental difficult challenge is um, to have some sort of an outreach. And I know that's when we isolate ourselves the most when it's difficult but at least a phone call, a text message says, hey, I need you to check on me. Or like as a mom, I remember when it was so, so, you know, postpartum depression was, was huge. And I've experienced different levels of that um, with both kids differently. And um, I do wish I had a bigger circle. And I wish that I maybe, it's not even about the circle, but I wish I reached out myself. And said, hey, I need I need help to a friend. I reached out to professionals my second time around. I thought that would be a better, more uh, 
yeah, more legit way that I could get help. And no, it was absolutely scary because then I thought I was going to be in prison um, because they say, hey, if you're thinking this, we're going to have to, you know, we have the right to contact social services or whoever. And you're like, oh, my God, I don't know what information I can trust you with. I don't feel safe. So therefore, I can't I don't think I can communicate with you. So what I'm saying is, you know, a community and outreach to somebody when you feel alone or when it's the toughest time in your life, I think it's it's huge. And for you to just push a button to your closest friend and say, hey, help me. You don't even need to describe, but you got to say something. And I think that's what we have to as ourselves, we have to become better at because then we need more more hands reaching into our bucket and saying, oh, I didn't even know. I had no idea what you're going through because 99% of the time they have no idea. Nobody knows. I mean, what you've seen as a firefighter and saving lives on a daily basis, we can't even fathom what, you know, what, what you have endured and just through your eyes and physically helping somebody. So friends need to do a, a better job to also, yes, this is your time. This, this time frame. Yep. What do you need? But we are the first people that can bring that to the attention. So we, we definitely need to do that ourselves. We need to take that first step. Absolutely. I think another thing that's, that's underestimated is how much people want to help. You just have to ask them, you know, and, and of course we can be proactive and look and, I, I reached out to Ryan a lot towards the end because I knew he was going through it. But ironically, you know, he was so overwhelmed that he wasn't didn't even have the capacity to talk. He was trying to, you know, fundraise at the time. But at least they're seeing like, hey, when you need me, I'm here. When you need me, I'm here. Because sometimes, you know, you don't get those texts answered. But I've had people say, I always... I always read your text. I knew you were you were there for me, you know. So even if you don't get it back, but absolutely, I think a lot of people, if you simply ask for help, you'll be blown away by how much people want to help. They just need a little direction sometimes. Right, right. Because I mean, people are busy in their own lives, but they will take the time. You just have to say it. You have to say it the rest the right way. Like I need help, you know. And they know who you are, so it's 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 a rare thing probably to hear something like that and they will, they'll stop and don't give up. You send, send that message to a couple of people because you deserve the help. And yes, you, you deserve anything, anything that you need, you know, especially if it, if it's a time like that. And that's when James, but you're probably reaching out to Ryan. I s- stepped in fully because I knew at that point I could be the only person that he can access and I could piggyback all the issues right away. So I had to like take full step in there and be there. And unfortunately, like, you know, I inherit every piece of that emotional and physical stress on me. But I thank God I was able to separate it when I knew that he was gone. I'm like, you've got the team and now I have to take, you know, every day I have to take a percentage off of that, off my shoulders and be mom you know, be here for the kids because I got a long nine days. That was nine days. I counted nine days. It was not seven. 
by the way. Yeah, I know. <laughs> we, we say seven, but yeah, we had the flight to Dallas, the flight to Johannesburg, then Cape Town, then, you know, Antarctica didn't go through, so stay in Cape Town. And then, yeah, so it was definitely 10 plus days for a lot of us. And I mean, and I mean, Ryan's already checked out from kids and everything, you know, three days prior, he was not available, like he would be eating in his office, and I would bring him food. And I'd check on him like he was literally he did not move. I don't even know if he went to the bathroom ever, he would be in that one space from the from morning till night. And sometimes the kids would come in, hug him and leave, but it was just he could not shift focus. And that was, it was excruciating, you know, it was, it was painful to see. And I know he never wants to feel that again. So you have to control how much pressure, how fast you're putting on. And that's also the timeline, you know, you're building that timeline. So there's got to be checkpoints to not get there again, that this has got to be a little bit of better procedure. And that's in all everybody's, you know, family life or business. Of course, business is very stressful. So, um, better management of time is huge. Absolutely. Well, speaking of management of time, I, I got to be conscious of yours. So, for people listening, I'm sure you know they, they're fascinated about hearing the, the journey, but especially when it comes to you know the the injury prevention, the barre. Is it barre? Is that how they say it or bar? Bar. Yes. Bar. This, it's one of my favorite things. You know, as a program, I used to teach, but. Um, Yes. Um, that's something that as a dancer, of course, that was the first thing I gravitated to because of course, for my body, my mind, that made sense. Um, I don't know where you were going with that, but that just is bar. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was going to say, so you, you offer you know, classes in bar and some of the other disciplines that you have, you, you help, as you said, with, especially with the postpartum side. So talk about where people can access you as a coach and access your information online. Yes, actually, um, I now shifted to really focusing on one-on-one -on -one coaching. It's online coaching. So I'm really focusing on helping my busy moms heal their diastasis, their separation of the rectus muscles postpartum and help rehab the whole core system with their pelvic floor. So I created an awesome program that they can tap into online. And it's one-on-one -on -one coaching with me that provides nutrition and that provides the fitness portion of the training. And it's great because moms don't have a lot of time. So you can access this whenever you need to, however you need to, but you can create that time frames that you can, you know, block off for yourself. And you can now focus on healing from the inside and the outside. So um, you can... You can access me from vladafit.com. That's my website, vladafit.com. Also, of course, um, you know, <laughs> it's it's tough to be a mom, but I'm trying to be a little bit more proactive. So I, I'm starting to send more information through my Instagram, which is just vlada.parrot. And the same thing, you know, from Facebook, vlada, vlada parrot. Um, But you can definitely find my program if you reach out to me and you can reach out to me at Vlada Fitness, Vlada Fitness at gmail.com. And I can give you all the details about my program. If you're interested, of course, helping shed some belly fat and heal the muscles of the stomach. And of course, prevent leaking, because that is not a thing that is 
cute and we don't need to think about it as normal because it's not. And it's, it's your bladder is trainable and your muscles are trainable. So we, we can put a stop to that. So if you need help, that's what I'm here for. <laughs> Beautiful. Well, I want to thank you so much. I mean, we've, we've gone all the way from, you know, your childhood in uh, Latvia all the way through to your immigration story and in your time working with some of these you know, elite entertainers, and then your transition out, and then the lens that you have on 7X, you know, as a wife, as a mother, but also I think your perspective kind of illustrates the altruistic element of this and, and the immense pressure that was put on, as well as, you know, the mirroring of service that you never got to witness as a military spouse, but you got you saw simulated through a completely different environment. So I just want to thank you so much for being so generous with your time and coming on the podcast today. Thank you, James. I appreciate you. Mm-hmm.